0: The church, the gospel made visible. What is the church? And I want you to imagine this morning that you're walking into a gathering on a Sunday morning. It's your first time in this particular gathering. And what hits you first is the friendliness. You walk in, and there's someone there at the door. They're there to greet you with a warm handshake. They smile. In fact, as you walk into the room, people notice you. Now, uh, depending on your personality, that's either a dream or a nightmare. Extrovert or introvert, but it's a nice thing to be noticed, isn't it? Because it, people are actually happy that you're there. That's a good thing. And so you have this good feeling as you walk into this gathering. The second thing that you notice is that these people are passionate. All right. In fact, they're so passionate that they have these gatherings all throughout the week. They're meeting more than just on this Sunday morning. In fact, they would love for you to join them. They're so passionate. The third thing you notice is that they have really good coffee, and even sometimes good food. And the best thing is, it's free, because it's your first time with them. Now, of course, what gathering am I describing? A meeting at a Central Coast bowls club. I'm serious. I'm actually serious. Um, I've, I've gone through on a, a few websites... Um, and I uh, found golf, uh, bowls clubs that meet over the weekend and some on Sunday. And here's a few quotes, okay? We would like to welcome all guests and visitors to join us in a friendly game of bowls. You'll be provided with free coaching to get you started. You can then participate in our social matches, which are played on several days throughout the week. You can combine barefoot bowls with food platters, buffet access, two to three course meals. Be part of a great social atmosphere, keep active and enjoy the outdoors. Okay. Friendly? Yep. Tick. Passionate? Yep. (laughs) Enjoy the outdoors, get active, meet throughout the week. Good, all right. Good food? Good coffee? Yep, especially if you go to Mingara or wherever else. Okay. Uh, Something free to help you feel welcome? Yep. Okay, here's the question. And keep your answer to yourself if you could. What is the difference between a bowls club? and a church. What is the difference? And don't jump in straight away and go, I know the answer, right? Because think about it. We want to be friendly, don't we? Yep. We're passionate. We have things that happen throughout the week. We've got good coffee. It's free if it's your first week. What really is the difference between us and a bowls club? All right. Yeah. Could you tell me in one word, what's the difference? One, two, three, Jesus, okay, yes, absolutely. Jesus is the difference. I mean, even as, as he says himself, Jesus says himself in Matthew 18, 20, where the two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them also. Okay. So gathering in Jesus' name is actually what marks us out from any other gathering in the world. Of course, we all know this. But we actually want to go a, a layer deeper on this. Is it enough for a gathering just to say... That it meets in Jesus' name. Is a church a church simply because it says that it's a church on the front of the building? In fact, I was down at the waterfront um, not too long ago, Uh, this is just before Easter, and I was about to go for a run, and I noticed just at the starting line where I'm about to start my run there's these two gentlemen, and they have a banner. And it's advertising Easter services. Uh, come along Sunday, come along Friday. And I think to myself, oh, no, I'm going to have to run past these guys. And they're going to cost me in some way. <laughs> so, so I've got to, like, get the jump on them. <laughs> okay, so I go over and goes, hey, guys, how you going? What's going on here? And they say, oh, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. And they go, ha-ha, I got the jump on you for once. It was me knocking on your door. <laughs> right? And we get talking. And I, I start to think, well, I'd love to share with them about Jesus. We're sharing, we're sharing. And as, I, as I'm talking about Jesus with them, they say, oh, Wow. We believe all the same things. We're a church just like you. Are they right? They claim to be a church of Jesus. Who are we to say that they're not? All right. What about this one? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There it says, the Church of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's one of these just down the road, a Mormon church. At times, I know for a fact we have been confused with the Mormon church because we both say basically the same thing on our building. Church of Jesus Christ, Church of Christ. Are they right? Are they a church of Jesus Christ? And what about all the other churches gathering around the world and around Australia this morning and in the coming day? What about the dozens of other churches here on the central coast? Are they true churches of Jesus? How can you know? What about this church? How can you know this is a true church? Oh, because I tell you, that's why. No, genuinely, how can you know for yourself? What are the criteria? Well, consider this. Imagine a neighbor comes to you and says, you won't believe it. I've started going to church. Now, what's your first reaction? Wow, exciting. That's so cool. But hold on. How do you know whether to be excited or nervous? Seriously. What if your kids or your grandkids, as they grow up, they move on from this church? They go somewhere else. How do you know whether they're going to end up at a true church or a false church? They come to you and say, I found a great new church. How do you know whether to be nervous or excited? Are you ever nervous? When someone says to you, I've started going to church. What about when one day perhaps you move on from this church? What should you look for? What should you look out for? Good questions. And you might say, well, it doesn't really matter, right? As long as a church is claiming to be a church. As long as they've got the things that a church does. Look, something's better than nothing. Well, hold on. What if there are churches out there that look like they've got Jesus, but in fact, they're masquerading? A bit like, you know, take a a cup of water like this one. It looks like a cup of water, smells like a cup of water, right? But what if you drink it and actually find that it's poison? You can't tell from the outside, looks like, smells like, but it's actually going to kill you so too with some gatherings that meet, even perhaps some gatherings here on the Central Coast. They claim to be a church, and they look like a church. They're friendly, they're passionate, they have things happening throughout the week, there's good coffee, there's changed lives, but there's poison. And if you drink it, it'll kill you because they're masquerading as a church when in fact... They are a false church. Now, how can you tell? It's tricky. Like I've said, they look like a real church. How can you tell? Well, today we're going to talk about what is the mark of a true church? Or what are the marks of a true church? And just to be clear, it's worth saying what we're not talking about here, okay? Because there are true churches and false churches, churches that have, say, the living water, of salvation in Christ, and churches that have poison in the cup, and as I said, can be tricky to work out. There's, think of it like a light switch, okay? Uh, you can have the light on or the light off, light or darkness, um, true church or false church. But then you could also have, as a di- different question, say a, a dimmer switch. You could have um, a, a church that is brighter and a church that is less bright. Both have the light on, correct? Both are true churches, Some are more faithful to God's word than others. Some preach God's words more clearly than others. Some are more devoted to genuine worship and prayer and evangelism than others. Okay, And every church has a weakness. Every church has, in fact, many weaknesses. This church does. Uh, And so this morning, we're not talking about the dimmer switch. We're not talking about degrees of purity and faithfulness within church. We're talking about whether the light is on or off. And the reason we're talking about that is because that's where the stakes are most high. Because you can go to a church that that has, um, you know, more bright or less bright, and it may be more or less helpful, but it's still going to have the things that make it a true church. But what if you end up at a church that is not a true church? What if your neighbors, your kids, your grandkids, your friends, your workmates, end up at a church that is not a true church, but they think that it is? The stakes are high. So let's pray. And then we're going to get into the Bible and see what are the marks of a true church? Oh, Heavenly Father, please help us this morning to think with a sober mind and with wisdom, with seriousness around this question. Uh, Lord Jesus, we know that you gave your life for the church. We know that uh, your church is a a pillar and a buttress of the truth. um, And that you um, long for your church to be presented to you as holy and without blemish and so you, you care for your church. Uh, we pray therefore help us to, to see where the line is um, and, and help us to think well about this this morning in Jesus name. Amen. All right um, if you want to turn with me please to 1st Corinthians chapter 15 passage that was just read for us. It's uh, If you're following along with the church Bibles page 961 page 961 and um, what you'll see up in the top right corner of the screen this week is, um, that's actually my phone number. Please don't prank call me. Um, But you can text through a question to that phone number. Um, We're going to be collecting questions over the next few weeks about this stuff of of what is the church. Uh, You can just text through a question and we'll collate it. And in a couple of weeks' time after the service, um, we'll get up and actually answer some of these questions. So if anything comes to mind while you're um, listening this morning... Just jot down a question, text it to that number, or you can write it down and throw it into the, um, the buckets at the end. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, what are the marks of a true church of Jesus? And um, just a bit of logic to follow with me here. A church gathers in the name of Jesus. That's what marks it out from any other gathering in the whole world. Therefore, it matters what a church says about Jesus. All right, this is going to distinguish whether they're, they're meeting in the name of the true Jesus or a different Jesus, a masquerading Jesus, a caricature of Jesus. All right, And here in 1 Corinthians 15, we actually get some criteria for who does a church need to say that Jesus is. You can actually kind of line up the picture we presented here and elsewhere in the Bible with what a church says, believes and preaches about Jesus and see if they actually line up or not. Okay, So 1 Corinthians 15, and just look at the first couple of verses... Paul, the writer here, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. The gospel is the good news, the good news about Jesus. He says, I'm going to remind you of the gospel which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Uh, this, is, this is the good news that saves. This is the water in the cup okay, to a thirsty world To people who desperately need salvation, this is it. It's the gospel. You are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Without this message, your cup is empty. Without this message, in fact, your cup may be filled with poison. You believe in vain. So do you see, straight away, Paul is, is drawing up a dividing line between two different things. There's either you've got the gospel and you're being saved, or you don't have the gospel and you believe in vain. Two things, cut with water, cut with poison. Now, what is the gospel? What is the message that saves? What does a church then to believe about Jesus to have this one? Take a look from verse 3. Paul says this. See how he begins? For I... Delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And just pause there. Don't miss the significance of what Paul says right here. Two things. Firstly, I delivered to you as of first importance. He says, What I'm about to unpack with you, the gospel, which you've taken your stand on, this is the most important thing. And what I'm going to describe to you are the most important things to believe about this gospel. All right? First, importance. Secondly, I pass on to you what I also received. The claim there is that Paul isn't just making this up. This is something that's actually been passed down amongst Christians since the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, this passage here, many scholars and many commentators say, is one of the earliest Christian creeds. A creed is just a collection of sayings or truths or propositions about someone or something. Here we have one of the earliest Christian creeds. It was probably in circulation amongst those who saw Jesus risen from the dead with their own eyes. Okay? So it's a bit like amongst us. If I said to you, oh, what's the Lord's Prayer? You go, oh, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be. It's sort of like that. They, they could just say something like what we're about to read and they would circulate it amongst each other. So first importance a creed that was passed down. What is it? Take a look. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some are fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What's Paul showing here about Jesus? Bring out three things. Firstly, that Jesus is historical reality, he's not a myth, he's not a philosophy, he's not an idea. The facts of his life, death, and resurrection are historical facts. Notice the chain of events as Paul describes it. He says, I'm reminding you that he died for our sins, and that he was buried, and that he was raised, and that he appeared. Do you notice the chain? It's one unbreakable chain of events. The same Jesus that lived and existed is the Jesus that died, is the Jesus that was buried, is the Jesus that was raised, and is the Jesus who appeared. He's the risen Son of God. And Paul backs it up with evidence. Now, we could spend... A whole sermon (laughs) going through all the evidence for why Jesus lived and died and rose again. But just notice what Paul says in verse number five. He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter. He appeared to Peter after his resurrection. And Peter went and actually preached to a huge crowd saying Jesus is risen. Now that's surprising. Because this is the Peter that, though he followed Jesus closely for three years, abandoned him when Jesus was arrested and when Jesus was crucified. This is the the Peter who totally lost hope, right? But then this is the Peter who does a complete 180 and goes out saying he's really risen from the dead and then ends up giving his life, crucified himself for that truth. Now, would someone die for something they believe to be a hoax? There's Peter. There's also the 12, the disciples of Jesus. Again, many of them gave their lives for something they believed to be true the resurrection of Jesus. Then it says that uh, they actually appeared to, uh, Jesus appeared resurrected to 500 brothers at one time. Can you see that in verse 6? Take a look. It says it right there. 500 brothers at one time. You know, if something unbelievable happened, like let's say um, you hear from Rob Jenner. Let's say Rob tells you that Betty, Betty Reed, has done a backflip in the car parking lot. All right? (laughs) Don't worry, Betty. Like, I once tried to do a handstand up in the kids' room And my butt went through the wall and we had to get it re-gyprocked, okay? So you're in good company. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Now, Rob comes along and says, you'll never believe it. Betty did a backflip. And what are you thinking? "Ah, Not trusting him. (laughs) Right? But what if if, um, the whole rest of the church came to you and said, you won't believe it. We all saw together, we saw Betty do a backflip. You'd still be like, hmm, maybe. Right? What if a group, six or seven times the size of this church, said that they saw that? Many of whom you don't actually know personally, right? They've got no vested interest as such. That's what we're talking about here. Five hundred of the brothers at the same time seeing Jesus risen from the dead. Not a private hallucination. Not a made up event. It's really happened. And he appeared to James and he appeared to Paul. So he stacks up the evidence. Now, a true church will say that Jesus is historical reality. He really did live, die, was buried, and really did raise, really was raised from the dead. Just make a mental note of that. We're going to talk more about that later. That's the first thing. The second thing is this Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. Notice throughout the passage, there's a repeated phrase, verse 3, that Christ died for our sins, what's it say next? In accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, what's it say? In accordance with the scriptures. Who is Jesus? He's the fulfillment of God's eternal plan as laid out in the scriptures, beginning from the Old Testament, the Old Testament actually points forward to Jesus. The New Testament points back to Jesus and forward to his future coming. All of Scripture points to Jesus. Therefore, at a true church, you won't hear something like this. You won't hear, oh, the Old Testament's just irrelevant. We only talk about the New Testament here. You won't hear that at a true church because all of Scripture points to the fact that we need Jesus, including the Old Testament. Without the Old Testament, we don't have the Messiah. We just have a guy who's turned up, right? So follow the logic on this. If Jesus is like the yes and the answer and the fulfilled promise of all of Scripture, then a true church is going to hold up all of Scripture as true. They're going to hold it as our highest authority. Therefore, again, you won't hear at a true church something like this. Oh, the Old Testament is is irrelevant. We only preach the New Testament. Nor will you hear something like this. The Bible is outdated. The Bible is antiquated. We need to interpret it in the light of some of our modern understanding. You won't hear that at a true church. You won't hear something like, the Bible's helpful, but what really matters is our experiences and our feelings. That's what really matters. You won't hear that at a true church. You will hear the Bible is true. The Bible is our highest authority. There is nothing on par. And the Bible points to Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture. Right? So there's a second criteria. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. A true church doesn't pick and choose. A true church takes it all and leaves nothing, knowing that it all points to Jesus. If you miss that, then how do we trust what parts of the Bible are true? How do we trust what parts we should trust that talk about Jesus? You see what I mean? It doesn't work. So a true church sees Jesus as a fulfillment of Scripture, which is all true. And then a third thing, Jesus is the only way to be saved. might seem obvious, but don't miss the huge significance and even the effect of this statement. Jesus is the only way to be saved. Verse 3, Christ died for our sins. It's only a few words, but that's a huge claim. Christ died. Why did he die? For our sins. Notice what that's affirming. It's affirming that we're sinful. It's affirming that we're, we're not good at heart like every Disney movie would have us believe. It's affirming that we have offended and rebelled against a holy God. It's affirming that we have have bitten the hand of our creator, so to speak. It's affirming that we're deserving of this God's judgment. And you know, in our private moments where we're alone, just in the, the privacy of our own hearts, we know this. We know this. Sometimes I've said, you know, imagine if I could get like your whole life on a, a DVD disc, right? All of it all recorded, including all of your thoughts as like an audio commentary, okay? And what if I could play it up on this screen for everyone to see? I'd be the first one to leave the room if that was me. Okay? And I've said that before, but but don't don't miss the significance of this. We're sinful. We've rebelled against God. We deserve his judgment. Why did Jesus have to die? He had to die to save us from our sins. Why death? Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. This is on page 942. Romans chapter 5, 942. Not poison, by the way. Romans 5, verse 6. We're going to read down to verse 10. So verse 6 to 10. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did it have to be this way? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Can you hear echoes of that First Corinthians passage? Christ died. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. There's a lot to unpack there. But let me just ask a couple of Simple questions. Firstly, what does this passage show about us? Look at the words that it says about us. We are weak, ungodly, not righteous, but sinners and enemies. That's what it says about us. What does this passage say about Christ and what he's done for us? Well, while we were still weak, Christ died for us. The ungodly. Do you see that? (laughs) While we were still sinners, God showed his love by sending Christ to die in our place. Here's the significance of his death. We're justified by his death. Just as if I'd never sinned, right? Because of the death of Christ. How does that work? Well, here's us, enemies of God, unrighteous, ungodly rebels. Deserving of the wrath of God. If you can see that there, verse 9, right at the end. We deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus, exactly the opposite. He's the son of God who never once sinned, never once rebelled against his father. He goes and he dies on the cross, facing the wrath of God in our place and justifies us. Makes it just as if I'd never sinned. It's the great exchange. My guilt... For Jesus' innocence, my sin for Jesus' perfection, my deserving of the wrath of God for Jesus' righteousness. This is why Jesus had to die. He had to be a substitute for us. We couldn't solve this one ourselves. Only someone completely righteous could pay the penalty that we owe to God. And how do we receive it? not by works. It's an act of grace. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you just to, to notice how Paul talks about himself here. Remember, this is on page 961. Thank you. Someone's clever out there. Good, 961. So after saying all this about the gospel, notice how Paul talks about himself in verse 9. He says, "...for I am the least of the apostles." unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He's not saying, oh, the sinners are all out there, but me, the guy writing this, I'm good. (laughs) He actually says, no, 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 I'm the least. I was persecuting Jesus' church. I was persecuting Jesus. And really in our hearts, that's all of us. All of us have been like that. But notice what he says next, verse 10. But by the grace... Of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. By the grace of God, what's grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay, God's riches, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. God showing us kindness, pouring out forgiveness, the riches of of his kindness on us at the expense of his son, who dies on the cross in our place. And we receive that by faith, by trusting Jesus, not by working. That's the opposite of grace. It's God's riches given to us as a gift at Christ's expense. We receive it by trusting him. And so just notice this. Jesus is the only way to be saved. And there are four things, really, that a true church has to affirm about that. It's not enough just to say, oh, well, Jesus has saved me. There are four truths under that that really need to be affirmed and that is sin, judgment, substitution, and faith. Without these four, you totally miss the significance of Jesus' death. Firstly, that we're sinners. We need salvation. Secondly, that there's the reality of God's coming judgment. Without that, we don't need salvation from anything. Thirdly, that Christ died as our substitute on the cross. God's wrath was poured out onto him in our place. Otherwise, his death makes no sense. And fourthly, that it's received only by faith and not by any work of our own. Without that, we wouldn't know when we've actually received the gift of forgiveness. Do you see these four things? Sin, judgment, substitution, faith. Christ died for our sins. That's why. Okay. So, Looking through 1 Corinthians 15, this creed, we see three things at least that a church has to hold up about Jesus if they're claiming to gather in his name. Firstly, that he's a real historical figure. He really lived, really died, really rose from the dead, and there's evidence of it. Secondly, that he's the fulfillment of Scripture, that all Scripture points to Jesus. And therefore, we have to take all Scripture as true and authoritative. And finally, that he is the only way of salvation, which sits on four truths, the truth of sin, judgment, substitution, and faith. There's the line. Okay? Paul actually says, again, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2, this is the gospel by which you are being saved. Here. Without this, you believe in vain. There's the line. Now, what do we do with that? Well, one thing we can do is actually test. As we think about groups that gather and claim to be a church of Jesus, we can use these criteria to help us test whether that's true or not. And, and some of you might think, well, hold on a sec. That sounds a bit judgmental. <laughs> like that sounds a bit mean. Who are we to say? But hold on, the reality is this. Some cups are filled with water and some are filled with poison. Some churches claiming to be churches of Jesus have the living water of this gospel. And some churches claiming to be churches of Jesus do not. And they have something that's actually only going to mess you up or mess up your kids or your grandkids or your neighbours or your friends or your workmates it's actually really important that we learn to test between those two things. It's not about being judgmental. It's about looking after ourselves and those that we love. And so it would make sense uh, for us to test. In fact, um, Paul elsewhere calls churches out, like to their face in public letters that we're reading 2,000 years later, saying, you're in danger of no longer being a true church. Think about the church in Galatia, for example. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, page 972. Galatians 1. Look at what he says in verse 6. This is pretty full on, right? If you have a picture of the New Testament churches that, hey, they're perfect and we should aspire to be like them in every way. Oh, hold on a second. (laughs) Take a look at this. Galatians 1 verse 6. Paul says this to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. What's happening here? The Galatian church is in danger. They're exchanging the true gospel for a false gospel. In fact, one that's about works. And so Paul says, you're in danger of no longer being a true church. You're going to lose the thing that actually marks you out. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 1. Look what he says. You foolish Galatians. (laughs) Who's bewitched you? Who's tricked you? Chapter 3, verse 1. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Notice, he points them back to point one here. The historical reality of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. He says to them, you know this really happened. Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Point 3, Jesus is the only way to be saved. And we receive that only through faith. See how he points them back? They've lost their way. So he says, come back to the gospel. Now, if a church that was around within a generation... Of Jesus life death and resurrection was he in danger of becoming a false church how much more could that be true today this is why we need to test and it probably seems appropriate to test our own church first doesn't it like I said it's not enough that merely me or Rob or whoever else tells you that this is a true church God's given your brain He wants us to decide and genuinely come to a conclusion for ourselves. And what you could do, therefore, is think about what's preached in this church. What do you hear during the sermons on a Sunday? If you're part of a growth group, what do you hear when we open the Bible together in growth group? Think about what we sing. What do we sing as part of this church? Does it affirm the truths about Jesus that we've just been talking about? What you could also do is go onto our website. We actually have on our website Hold on, I'll get rid of that—we actually have on our website a statement of faith. Okay, I'm going to show you this statement of faith. Get rid of that. This statement of faith here you can find on our about us section of our website, and you can go through and actually see written down what are some of the core things we believe about Jesus and about the Bible. And I'll just read out a couple of these for you. Um, We believe in the divine inspiration and infallibility of the Holy Scripture, which is the supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. True church or false church? Think for yourself. True church or false church? We believe Holy Scripture is infallible and is our supreme authority. We believe Jesus Christ is God, the living word. True true church or false church? Keep in mind, if Jesus isn't God, he can't be a perfect sacrifice for our sins. We believe that Jesus died on the cross as our substitute, thus satisfying divine justice and accomplishing salvation for all who trust in him alone. True church or false church? Remember, sin, judgment, substitution, faith. We believe Jesus rose from the dead and ascended bodily into heaven. True church or false church? You can do this work for yourself. Go through, take a look. And now, obviously, I wouldn't be here if I didn't think that that this was a true church, right? But you've got to come to a conclusion for yourself. Uh, there are some people who don't necessarily think that we're a true church, okay? Uh, for example, if you go onto uh, Google and you search us, Wyoming Church of Christ, you'll get these Google reviews, and they can give a star rating. You know, five stars if they think you're great, one star. Here's, here's an example. Uh, I've blanked out the name. There's someone who took a picture of our church and wrote in the middle there, not religious. I don't really know what they were thinking. Um, but just so you know, up the top there, Nigel Wakeley, he thinks this is a great warm place. It's very welcoming to all. Down the bottom, uh, David D. That could be David Dundas. Uh, five stars. So, you know. <laughs> but look, don't listen to the Google reviews. Listen to how the word is preached here. Look at the statement of faith. Come to a conclusion. Is this a true church or a false church? Do the same when you visit other churches. Do the same when you hear that a neighbor or friend or relative is going to another church. It might seem a little bit weird, like, shouldn't I just be excited? No, we need to test. All right. And just to give some examples, think about... um, couple of mates I met down at Gosford Waterfront, Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? They said we believe the same thing. Now, it's hard to actually give an answer for why that's not true when there's a smiling person staring back at you, isn't it? It's one thing to think about up here, but when actually someone's smiling. And so think about it now before you have the person in front of you. <laughs> And here's something you might think about when it comes to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Actually, they both have a very similar pattern. Um, The pattern starts here. Um, They don't believe that the Bible is the highest authority. So that point number two, Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture, um, that's less important for them because it's not just Scripture. It's not just the Bible here that they look at. They have another publication that they put alongside the Bible as equally authoritative. In the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's called the Watchtower. In the Mormons, it's called the Book of Mormon. And inevitably what happens is because they put that on par, that publication ends up interpreting the Bible for them and it loses its truth. Okay. As a result, both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons deny that Jesus is God. Therefore, he can't be an adequate substitution for our sin. And they both deny that salvation is by faith alone. It's by a combination of faith and works. So do you see? That's why they're not a true church. Now, let's go to something just maybe a little less obvious or a little harder. What about the Catholic Church? What about the Catholic Church? Now, a caveat to this, probably many of you have friends who are Catholic. I do. Um, And they're lovely people, very friendly. In fact, within the Catholic Church, I have no doubt that there are, in fact, some people who are saved. And in fact, there may be some Catholic congregations out there that preach the true gospel as we've described it. There may be. But here's the problem. The Catholic Church as a whole, again, does the same thing that the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses do. Have you thought about this? The Catholic Church doesn't just hold up the Bible as their sole and highest authority. It's the Bible plus the traditions of the church plus the authority of the Pope. It's actually three things. And that leads them in their documentation, to say that salvation is not only by faith, but also by works. Now, any Catholic congregation that holds to that is not a true church. Do you see? This is how we can apply some of these tests. What if we come a little closer to home? What if instead of some of these sort of more obvious ones, we think about the churches that, that really do maybe look good that may well have poison on the inside. So think about about churches that have real signs of life to them, that have lots of people coming in droves. But what you hear from the pulpit is something like this. Jesus died to make you rich. Jesus died to restore all your health and give you a prosperous life. Now, we sometimes call this the prosperity gospel. It's not a gospel at all, but often we call it that as a shorthand. The prosperity gospel actually presents a different Jesus. In the true gospel, Christ died as a substitute for our sins to face the judgment of God, that we might now share a relationship with God by faith in him and walk with him now through life, but the promise of all the riches of God's blessing and the promise of of seeing him face to face and having all the inheritance of the kingdom comes in the new heavens and the new earth. However, the prosperity, prosperity gospel says, Christ died to make you rich now. Christ died to make you healthy now. And if you have enough faith in him, he'll do that for you now. Now, that's not Jesus, the substitute. That's Jesus, the divine butler. Honestly, that's a different Jesus. Any church that preaches this so-called prosperity gospel is therefore not a true church. And some of you will be aware that, that it's, it's generally um, Pentecostal churches that will preach it. Now, you hear what I'm saying? I'm not saying that all Pentecostal churches preach the prosperity gospel. Tends to be that you find this within Pentecostal circles. And understand, I have nothing wrong with Pentecostal churches. Um, I have friends who are, and they share the same faith that I do. And kind of like Rob says, you know, look at me. My neck's not bulging. I'm not angry. Even if my neck was bulging, I wouldn't look very threatening. Okay, I'm a pretty thin sort of guy. (laughs) All right. There's there's no, there's no antimony or anger or anything here. But but hear me rightly, any church that preaches this so-called prosperity gospel is not a true church by the criteria that we've just discussed. What about churches that claim something like baptism is a requirement for salvation? Theologically, it's called regenerational baptism, right? Again, that's not faith. That's not salvation by faith. That's not a true church. What about churches that minimize sin? Let's say we should only ever talk about God's grace and God's love and God's acceptance, not about his judgment or his sin. If they're not already a false church, they're in danger of becoming one like the Galatians. Now, hopefully everyone's suitably offended at this point. It's, It's pretty hard stuff, isn't it? Right? It's really hard stuff. But it's really important we do this. There is a line. The Bible draws it really clearly. There are true churches and false churches, some that have living water, some that have poison. We don't want to be found to be drinking poison, nor our kids, nor our grandkids, nor our relatives, nor neighbours, nor workmates. Therefore, keep your eyes peeled. Keep your antennae up, as it were, when you come to a church. Even this church, as I said, keep looking out. Make sure the true gospel is being preached. Support us. Pray for us to keep preaching the true gospel. When you go and visit another church, keep your antennae up. Keep your eyes peeled. Don't get too distracted by just the friendliness. Good things. Friendliness programs. Lives change. Good things. The most important thing, though, is this message. Is the gospel preached? Is it a true church? If you have a friend or a relative who you reckon might be part of a false church, what do you do? You could offer to read the Bible with them. It's actually a really good thing to do. I'm going to give you an in on this right now, okay? Here's what you do. Um, Romans 5, verses 6 to 10, that passage that we we looked at just a moment ago, Christ died and um, the wrath of God, all of that there. I mentioned that in today's sermon, didn't I? Great, so here's what you do. You go to your friend who you reckon might be part of a false church, don't go to them and say, I think you're part of a false church. Okay? Go to them and just say, oh, I heard a really good sermon. Make sure you say it's a good sermon. All right? I heard a really good sermon on the weekend at our church. Uh, he talked about Romans 5, chapter 6 to 10. Have you read that passage before? I just really enjoyed the sermon. It said some stuff that, that I think is really important to think about. Could we read that together? See, hopefully that's not too weird right? If you've got someone who sort of goes like, oh, I don't want to read the Bible, then you've probably got like bigger problems than that they're part of a false church. But, but um, if they are part of a gathering, they'll probably want to read the Bible with you. So just say, I really found a lot of help from this passage. Can we read it together? I'd just love to hear what you think. And then just see how they think through some of these issues. Ask them what they teach at their church. Does your t- church teach these things that teach about sin, judgment, salvation by faith alone? that Christ was our substitute? Does it teach about these things? You could do something like that. Go and read the Bible with someone that you think um, might be part of a false church. You don't have to be clever to try and convince them. Let God do the work through his word. Now, finally, I just want to finish on an encouragement, okay? Um, In every true church, there's true power. Friends, I want you to hear that. In every true church, there's true power because of the true gospel. Jesus is very real. God's love is shown so clearly in the gospel, at the cross. The message of the gospel has the power to save. It saved many of you. It saved me. It has the power to save ratbags like you and me (laughs) and bring us into eternal life. This is true. This is true power. We don't just get together because we have stuff in common. Like, we're very different people, really, here. <laughs> different generations, different racial backgrounds, different hobbies. Like, I'm going to pick on you again, Betty. Um, <laughs> I keep inviting Betty to come over and play video games, and she says I'm not interested, right? We have different... No, I don't really do that. We have, we have different hobbies. We have... Say again? More intellectual. Ah, oh, that's true. That is true. We're different. Don't lose my point. We're different. Right? What do we gather around? Is it just a is it just a common hobby? No. We gather around these truths about Jesus, the risen Son of God. We stand on the rock of the gospel, together with every other true church in the world. There's huge power in that. Power to save. How you've been saved, and power to bring this hope and this living water to a world that is desperately thirsty. Only the true church can do it. Praise God that we're part of it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, continue to grow this church in faithfulness to your gospel. We pray, give us wisdom to know how to discern, um, to see uh, other churches. Um, for uh, as true churches as they are and to praise you for them or as false churches that that must be warned against. Lord, please give us the wisdom and the the courage and the boldness to do that. For those amongst us this morning, Lord, who are hearing this gospel perhaps for the first time or hearing it in a new light, Lord, we pray that you would bring them to salvation to find the, the power that we've been talking about and the forgiveness of sin that's in Jesus alone. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.